standing at the center of not just history, but all time. This event, Matthew 1 and 2, is what splits time. This is something that should pinpoint and point everybody to Jesus Christ. Nobody else's birth, if you can name any, nobody else's birth splits time. There's only one, one birth that ever split time, and it's the birth of Jesus Christ. So we see this here. It's a very important event that we've been studying. We started with his genealogy, worked our way through his birth, and now we'll get him to the point where uh, we get through his childhood. Uh, so today we're going to look at it. This is a very familiar event that we all know and understand and love, and we studied it. You know it. Even our kids here this morning, I know they're here with us. Uh, today, that they could tell us about the birth of Christ, they could tell us about his infancy. But I want to give you a story today that you probably don't know a whole lot about. This is very overlooked, this is not talked about. This side of Christmas, is, it can actually be called the dark side. I told Gracie that this morning on the way here. I said, I almost titled this sermon The Dark Side of Christmas because it is very dark. We've seen a, a lighter side of all these events, and now we can see something very, very dark. A very difficult passage to study today, but I think you'll get you'll you'll see it's a it's a very marvelous passage. It's worth our careful attention. So let's stand together. I call this sermon, this passage, the other side of Christmas. We've heard and we've seen the the good side. Now we're going to look at the other side of Christmas. And it's verses 13 through 23. And again, this might not be as familiar. Uh, usually, the the birth narrative starts at, at verse 12 of chapter two. And everybody overlooks this passage. I, I, I doubt that there's very many preachers that are preaching this passage today. As we look at the other side, the side that's not often talked about, side of Christmas. Starting in verse 13, I'll read through verse 23 just to, to set this before you here this morning. Verse 13 says, And when they were departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeareth to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. And be thou there until I bring thee word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. To devour him would be that word. Verse 14, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed into Egypt. And was there until the death of Herod. That it might be fulfilled which is spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth, and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem, and in the, all the coasts thereof, from two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, In Ramah was there a voice heard lamentation and weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and would not be comforted because they are not. But when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeareth in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, and take the young child and his mother, and go into the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. And he arose and took the young child, and you see that young child, he's no longer a baby, so we're seeing his infancy here. And he arose and took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. When he heard that Archaeus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, he was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding, being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And when he came and dwelled in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So let's pray together, and then we'll study this passage and look at the other side of Christmas. Let's pray together. Father, we desire your help today as we embark upon a very difficult passage. It is not hard to understand. It's just hard to swallow. There's a lot of darkness here. There's a lot of evil and sin here. 
it's often hard for us to, to fathom how this event could happen at such a marvelous time in, in history. So we pray, God, that you would give us wisdom, give us guidance, give us enlightenment that we can understand this passage, that we can see uh, how even in the dark times of our lives that you are working and that you are moving and that you are uh, guiding us. So God, help us here. Help us not to be bored with this today. It's not a boring passage. Help us not to be indifferent today. But help us, God, to be expectant that you will speak to our hearts today as we study this. And God, I will ask personally that you would help me, aid me by your spirit to present these truths at, as best as I can. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. As I, I give you a quote to start it out today by Charles Dickens. You guys know a popular author. He wrote the, the Tale of Two Cities. And his most popular quote, and some of you have probably heard this before, but the, the quote is at the beginning of Tale of Two Cities, it, is, it, it was the, the best of times and it was the worst of times. That's a very popular quote saying that there, in, in that time there was good things happening and there was bad things happening. It was the, the best of times and it was also the worst of times. And I think this describes our Christmas, everybody's Christmas, uh, perfectly. Because at, at Christmas time we can say it was the best of times. It was good times. I've asked several of you here this morning, how was your Christmas? And, and every one of you said, oh, we had a great Christmas. This happened and, and this happened. And there's all kinds of great things that happen at Christmas. I can tell you from experience, I love Christmas. Gracie would tell you it's the, the best time of the year. It truly is. Uh, you, you love the, the gifts, you love the lights, you love the family, you love the gifts, you love the, uh, you love the, the food, you, you love the singing, you love the church services, you love the, the gifts. I mean, there's all kinds of, <laughs> we can just keep going on and on and on, but you, you, you love all these things, and, and I hate to see it go. I love Christmas, I love everything about it. I, I don't look forward to taking these decorations down. I love seeing the, the lights in the church, I love seeing the lights in town, I love the, the lights in my home that Steph took down immediately after Christmas. I, I, I love all those events of Christmas. It really is the best of times. We could go on and on and on. But you also know that Christmas has its bad parts too. Christmas has crowded stores and family fights and lots and lots and lots and lots of Hallmark movies. There's some bad... <laughs> and lots and lots and lots of Hallmark movies. <laughs> if I see one more Hallmark movie... <laughs> Uh, I'm glad to see those go. I'm not glad to see Christmas go, but I'm glad to see that go. Uh, because those homework movies, I'll tell you another bad part of Christmas, sets an expectation for your Christmas to be just like that. And most of the time our Christmases fall way short of what TV depicts it to be. And people start to get disappointed. People start to get depressed. People trying to, 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 set that, to meet that standard end, end up in poverty, end up spending way too much money, and end up in disappointment, end up in depression, end up in loneliness. You can ask a lot of people, and a lot of people will say Christmas is the worst time of year for them. They miss family. They don't have the money to spend. There's no children. There's no happiness. Their house is, is, has no lights and no decoration. A lot of people, maybe some of you here today, you just don't like Christmas. It, it can be the best of times for some of us, and it can also be the worst of times for many of us. We need to see that, that Christmas has, has both sides to it. Our kids may understand that. It, they, they, they always see it as, as the best of times. It's, again, gifts and, and all the things that Christmas has to offer. But for many of us, there's also the dark side. There's a side that's not very enjoyable. There's a side of looking at, at your bank statement after Christmas is over. 
Uh, there's, there's a hard side to Christmas. Every one of us probably feel that crunch of, of trying to meet those expectations and not being able to do so. So there's a, it's the best of times, and it's also the worst of times. And it's not just that now. I think it's always been that way. Because as you look at the first Christmas, it was the best of times, and it was uh, the worst of times. The best of times, we've seen that. It's been a spectacular event in Matthew 2. I mean, it's just been an out of the, truly out-of-this-world event. As you see here, I'm going to just give you a couple verses. The joy of Mary. I read in Luke 2 that Mary said this at Christmas. Imagine this. Mary said, Jesus' mother, and Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. How great that Christmas was for her. The song of the angels. An army choir came and said, Glory to God in the highest and on, on earth peace, goodwill towards men. The angels in heaven were celebrating the greatness of, of this event. The worship of the wise men as they came with gold, frankincense, and myrrh and bowed down before the Savior. Marvelous event. The praise of the shepherds. It says that they returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen. The shepherds were excited. Mary was excited. The wise men were excited. All of heaven was rejoicing at the birth of this great king. It was a glory, spectacular, out of this world event. It was the, the best of times. An unbelievable, outstanding scene here. But then we turn the page and we see the worst of Christmas. The dark side that many don't talk about. We see here in chapter 2 that not everybody's happy about Christ. We see here that the worship of the king becomes the rejection of the king. We see here the world that Jesus came into. And that's the whole point of this passage, was that Jesus didn't come into a perfect world. Jesus didn't come into a Hallmark movie world. Jesus came into a world of great darkness, of great hostility, of great sin, of great violence, of great cruelty. Jesus came into a world that we live in. Jesus didn't come into a pretend world or a fake world or a utopian world where everything was perfect. Jesus came into a a sinful world and to that world he gives light in the dark world he gives hope to a hopeless person he gives peace to those who are troubled and chaotic he brings salvation to those who are lost jesus comes into the darkest of times to bring light to that world this is a great event but it's also a very dark event and we need to see that here today as we see the other side of christmas a side that, again that maybe you've never seen before and maybe you, you can relate to this because your Christmas is just as dark. Your Christmas is just as hard, just as chaotic. It's not what you thought it should be. And you look to Jesus and He will give you light in the darkness. He'll give you hope in your despair. He'll give you peace in your chaos. And He will give you salvation in your sin. So let's look at this passage today. I'm going to give you three points as we look at the, the other side of Christmas. Number one, I want to show you the plan of Christmas have you ever noticed that at Christmas everything doesn't usually go as you planned it to go? You'll do that on Christmas morning as you'll put the presents around and you expect your kids to come in. They're supposed to be well behaved and you know they're, they're going to open all their gifts. And We plan these things. Steph does a great job of planning our Christmases and, and trying to get the kids exactly what they want. And, and they're going to open their presents. We're taking pictures of them and they're so excited. They're going to hold it up and say, I've got exactly what I wanted. And then it doesn't go as planned as your kids come in. They open their present. They look at it and they do, eh, yeah. <laughs> I've already got this, you know. <laughs> and it doesn't go as planned. This Christmas was not going, this first one, as planned. I want you to look at this. 
And, and we see the surprise of, of this Christmas. It, it was first it started out with in, in chapter two a surprise pregnancy. Mary never expected to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. That was not in her life plan. That was not how she laid it out to be. Nobody expected that. Joseph definitely didn't expect it. He was going to. He was going to. Uh, he was engaged to Mary. He was going to marry her. His life was going to be in, in a totally different direction. And then all of a sudden, she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit and going to have the, the God Man, Jesus Christ. And that was totally unexpected. That was not planned at all. Joseph will look at his life now and say, I have no idea where all this came from. Who knows how their family's treating them? I mean, if they had a, a Christmas dinner, <laughs> can you imagine sitting around the table and, and Joseph sitting there with a pregnant wife? And he's like, pregnant by the Spirit. <laughs> the family's probably sitting there, as most families would, and they're, they're whispering to each other. There's rumors about them. This is a surprise pregnancy. It's not as planned. And then there's a, the surprise birth. They don't get to have Jesus in their own hometown. They travel to Bethlehem. They have Jesus in a stable, in a feeding trough. There's unexpected visitors that pop in. These shepherds show up. These wise men show up. Angels are declaring all this. This is totally unexpected. It's not as they would plan. And then now in verse, in verse 13, I want you to see this. They didn't even get to have a baby shower. And all of a sudden, verse 13, and when the wise men left, probably looking to settle in, to have some normalcy in their life, all of a sudden an angel appears to them. And says, now, all this surprise pregnancy, surprise birth, surprise visitors, and now they've got to move. Pack your stuff up, Joseph, and leave. And this passage, the way it's worded, it's not, and, and take a few days and plan things out and leave. No, it's in the middle of the night. You better leave right now. They're trying to kill this baby. You better pack your wife up. You better pack your child up. Gather it all together in the middle of the night, and you take off. Don't wait at all. There's urgency to this. Immediate action must be taken, or your lives are in danger. So their first Christmas has a mood where they have to leave. But they're not safe. They're on the run. They're looking over their shoulder. They're afraid they might be killed. Look at that. When they departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise. That's, that's quick. Get up. Middle of the night. I mean, nobody travels at night during this time. It's dangerous. Get up and let's go. And take the young child and his mother and flee into Egypt. Egypt to be about 100 miles away. Middle of the night traveling. And Egypt is the most despised land. It's their enemies. You, Jews do not go to Egypt. You leave Egypt to go to Jerusalem. You don't leave Jerusalem to go to Egypt. So now you're going to travel 100 miles to the most despised place, the place of your enemies. It's like Cowboys fans spending Christmas with Redskins fans. I mean, you just don't do that. Just seeing if you guys are awake. I don't know. <laughs> Arise and flee into Egypt and stay there until I bring thee word. Why? Because Herod is going to seek the young child to destroy him. To devour him. So they get up and they move it. And it's not the only move that they have. Because they get to Egypt and they stay there. We don't know how long they stay there. But then in verse 19 the angel shows up again and says let's move again. Leave Egypt and go to Jerusalem. So he goes to Jerusalem. You see here saying arise. Take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. So go back. And he rose and he took the young child. Verse 21 and his mother. And he came to Israel. But when he saw who was leading there, the angel again said, hey, wait, now we're going to go to Nazareth. So now he's just traveling all over. He spends his first Christmas, surprise pregnancy, surprise birth, surprise visitors, surprise move. It's just all over the place. Jesus is moving his whole first two years of his life. It's just one big surprise, unplanned, unexpected event. 
But we see here that every single part of it was a part of God's plan. Unplanned to me is planned to God. Amen. You understand what I'm saying? Unplanned for Mary and Joseph, unplanned pregnancy, unplanned birth, unplanned visitors, unplanned moves from, from Jerusalem, from Bethlehem to, to, uh, to Egypt. All of them just keep on moving to end up in Nazareth. All this was unplanned to them, but all of it was planned to God. So in your life, and we'll get into this in a second, in your life, a lot of unexpected, unplanned things may happen. From the young kids here, who knows what's going to happen in your lives as you grow up? I mean, you may have plans right now, and I know my kids have these, these plans that they have for life. I want to grow up. I want to go to this school. I'm going to do this when I, when I get, get out of college, and I, I want this to be my career, and I want this person to be my wife or my husband. I want to have this many kids. I want to retire at 50, you know, move to Florida and just live it up. All these plans you have for your life, and, but unexpected things are going to come in. I mean, you may be all over the place, but unexpected to me is planned by God. Watch this. You say, where are you getting that at? Watch. Now this is, I love it. I love seeing this. First move in verse 13. You see that? Get up and move to Egypt. Verse 15. You see this? And was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, out of Egypt have I called my son. Unexpected, verses 13 and 14, but prophesied, verse 15, had been planned 700 years beforehand. What, the, what was unplanned for them had been planned in eternity past by God. I'll go again if you want to see it again. Look at verse 18. All this happening that, that Herod is, is killing these babies. In verse 18 it says, and all this even here. Verse 17. Then was fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, the pro, spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, again, another prophecy, 700 years beforehand. Even that was planned by God. Even the evil, atrocious acts of Herod here that is unplanned, unexpected, and we don't think anything, we think that's awful. But it's been planned by God. I'll take you one step further. Verse 23. The last move they make back to Nazareth. And look what it says. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Every event in the life of Christ. It's, it's starting out here in his infancy. From where he was born and how he was born and every event throughout his life was all planned by God before the foundations of the world. Unplanned to them is planned to God. This is, a, this is a, an amazing thing. It's all, all fulfilling prophecy. It's again 700 years beforehand. God planned this. Jesus now as a baby is, and he has no control of this. He's a little baby in, in his mother's arms. Years old, and everything that they're doing, everything that God is piecing together has been put together by God, fulfilling it exactly. And you say, what is all this showing us? It shows us who God is. That God is not a spectator over history, but He is sovereign over history. Amen. That He is a God who doesn't respond to things in life. Get this. God isn't responding to things in your life. God is ordering things in your life. God isn't looking down and saying, as, as Jesus is there in, in Bethlehem and the wise men leave, and He's saying, oh no, Herod is, 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 is <laughs> Herod's going to try to kill him. I better figure some other plan out. Hey, get him out of there! No, God had this planned way before this ever happened. God doesn't respond to events. God orders events. 
God moves. These, these are events aren't random. They are, they are planned by God. And, and we can see this all over his life. Is that his, God's divine hand, like, like playing chess on a chessboard, the divine hand of God is moving them around. He sends angels. He has prophecies. There's dreams. All these things moving them exactly where they're supposed to be. You need to start in, in Bethlehem. You need to move to, to, to all, Nazareth and all these different locations. You need to go to Egypt. You need to go back to Israel. God is working every bit of it out with his divine hand by his divine plan. You can zoom it out and see how God is working everything out in the big details and zoom it in and see how God is working in the small, finest of details in our lives. That's who God is. He's a God of the intricate details of our lives. He is guiding even the small moves that Jesus is making. This is Beautiful seeing this, that he directs the events of history to bring about his exact plan. We see it here, a specific plan for Christ. Not just here, but throughout his life. You see the divine hand of the Father moving, ordering every event of the life of Christ. Three. the divine hand moving at all. All the details of his life. And I can apply this to you too. And me. Do you see, and we should, the divine hand of God in our own lives? If something happens to you and it's unplanned and it's unexpected and you never saw it coming, and when you take a step back and zoom out, you see that the divine hand was moving in your life, even in the unexpected. Even in the unplanned. Even in the, in the, I'll say this, and this might be controversial. Even in the bad things of life. Even in the hard things of life. Especially in the troubling things of life. Our God is moving things and ordering things to accomplish His exact plan. Because that's who God is. I believe God has a plan for all of us. I believe that God, that there's a divine hand in, in every one of our lives. That He's present, He is guiding, He's controlling, He's intervening to bring about good in our lives. Romans 8, 28 says, For all things work together for the good. That God is piecing the puzzle of our lives together for, for, for our own good and for His own glory. That's what God does. He's doing it in the life of Jesus. He's doing it in our lives. That's who God is. He is planning and ordering our lives. You may look at your life now and say, it's chaos. I don't know what's going on. There may be surprise pregnancies. There may be surprise births. There may be surprise visitors. There may be a surprise losing of a job. There may be a surprise death. There may be all these sicknesses and, and troubles and all these things that could happen in your life. But you can sit back and rest assured that God, by His divine providence, is working everything out according to His plan. This is a great truth that we all need to understand. He does it beautifully. He does it carefully. He does it marvelously. He does it wisely. This is who our God is. We can trust Him in even the finest details of our life. And one day, we'll all zoom out and see our life. We may not see it here. I can do it now. I can zoom out of my life and go back 10 years ago. And the chaos of my life, then I can see how the divine hand of God was moving. I can zoom out, you know, see, even in marrying my wife. I mean, you sit there and say, all these different things in high school could have went this way, could have went that way. But God in His providence put her there and me there. And now we have kids and we have a ministry together. It's all God working these things out. 
How He brought these things together. And one day, we'll all be in heaven. And the things we don't understand, the things we can't comprehend now. We, and and G- Jesus said that in John 8. He said, the things I do now, you don't understand. But you will someday. So one day in heaven, we'll look back at our lives and say, every event, whether unplanned, unexpected, unorganized, or chaotic, that God was piecing it all together for my good and for His glory. So what He was doing here, that's what He's doing now. This is where we, and I think Charles Spurgeon said it best, I rest my head upon the providence of God and go to sleep every night. That what happened to me today and what will happen to me tomorrow is all under the providence and sovereignty of God. What a great truth. God has a plan. I would write this down. God has a plan and He is accomplishing it. Even in the bad and even in the trials, He's going to accomplish His plan. Even when, and I want you to get this too, because this is moving us into the second point. Even when that plan is opposed. Even when somebody tries to stop Him. He's still going to accomplish his plans. So now let's look at point two. We saw the plan of Christmas. Let me show you the pain of Christmas. The pain. I don't know if you guys have ever experienced pain at Christmas or any other time. But look at this pain. This is the worst pain that you could ever imagine here. Look at verse 16. Then Herod, and we know Herod. Herod is a terrible and wicked man. He's cruel He's a slave to his passions. He does what he pleases. Herod follows his heart, which is bad. Here Herod is angry. You see this, it says, and then Herod, verse 16, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, which means he was tricked. That's what that word mocked means. He was tricked. He was played a fool by the wise men. He told them to go and find the baby. Go, go and get the child. Go and find him. Come get me. I want to worship him too. But he didn't want to worship him. He wanted to kill him. And when the wise men left and went the other way, they didn't come back to Herod. He's sitting there waiting. And it's been days. It's been months. And he's sitting there saying, I don't think these guys are coming back. And he started to get mad. He started to get angry. Look, it says, and I like that word. He, started, he got exceeding wrath, which means he got red-faced mad. He got so mad I think our, our kids here can understand this. He got so mad that he couldn't control himself. And exceeding wrath means that it was, it was like a, a boiling cup of water. It was boiling over the edges. He was just so upset that he just wanted to do something. I mean, he may have been in, in his palace throwing things up against the wall. He may have been beating his hand up against the, uh, the, the throne. I mean, he's just so mad. Have you ever been that mad? I mean, just so mad you couldn't control it. He's, he's so upset. So what he does is this is a powerful king that has been mocked. And this is an evil king that has been mocked. So now he is so mad. So what's he going to do? Go after that child. I must kill that child at all costs. This is a wicked man. Why must he kill the child? I mentioned it last week, but I want to tell you this. Because Jesus is born king of the Jews, and Herod's title was king of the Jews. So Jesus was a threat to Herod's throne. And Herod wanted to keep his throne. So in order to keep his throne, he had to kill the opposition. So that's what he's going to do. Even if that opposition is a little child, I'm going to kill that opposition. I must hold on to my power, to my authority, to my place. I must keep it at all costs. So what is he going to do? He's going to try to kill that child. So he opposes the plan of God. And there will always be. I like this. I I don't have time to really get into it. But Revelation 12 speaks of this. 
You don't have to turn there. Just let me. It's a picture of, of what's going to happen here. Let me just read you a couple verses. I, I'll, I'll lock this as we just studied a while back. Uh, and it says here, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and a moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. This is a pregnant woman. This is the picture of Mary with, with Jesus. Verse 3, And there appeared another wonder in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven. It's talking about Satan here. And it cast him into the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. Jesus from day one was opposed by Satan. Amen. There will always be opposition to the plan of God. If you are, most people think that if they're in the will of God, the plan of God, that it should be easy sailing and everything goes smooth. It's the exact opposite. If you are in the will of God, the plan of God, doing what God wants you to do, you will automatically face opposition. It will not be easy. The world will hate you. If it hated him, it will hate you. If it persecuted him, it will persecute you. That's just how life goes. There's always going to be those who oppose God. The majority of the world opposes God. They do wicked things. And they have a fist in the air against what God wants them to do. And this is what Satan does here. He's after Christ. It's a rebellion against Christ. So here's what Herod decides to do. And I want to give you a warning here. I know our kids are up here. This is not pretty. So when Herod saw that he was mocked to the wise men, who's exceeding wrath. And he sent forth soldiers to kill all the children in Bethlehem and all the coasts thereof that were two years old and under, according to the time which he had diligently inquired of the wise men. This shows the heart of this man that he didn't value. And this shows the heart of any man or woman. If you don't value life, your heart is wicked and evil. But he didn't value life, and he decides he's going to kill all the boys two and under in his jurisdiction trying to murder Christ. If I kill all the kids under two and Jesus is somewhere in that crowd, then I'll automatically get Jesus. So I must kill every one of them in order to kill this one that I'm after. So this is what he tries to do. He sends a slaughter squad into the town of Bethlehem. Goes into this village with, sh- with soldiers and they're going, how- you can imagine in your mind that these soldiers with their spears and their, their uh, regalia that they would have on their heads and the helmets and the, the, the clothing that they would wear and they go knocking on doors of every door in the house of Bethlehem. And they have these spears in their hands and sword on their sides and they go and knock on doors and they say, do you have a child here? And they're asking these parents, do you have a child? Do you have a, a boy? Is he under two years old and a mother's not warned, a father's not warned, they have no idea what's coming and they look into the room and there sits a little two year old boy and they have to go in and they have to take that child from the mother and the mother has no chance to say goodbye, the mother has no chance to hold that child, the mother has no chance to flee, to run, to hide, to get away to do anything in their power to save that little boy and the soldier takes the children out of the home and I don't know how they kill, I don't even want to think to, to fathom what they did to kill those children House to house to house, every boy under two would be killed. And there are nobody getting out of it. There's no child spared. If a two-year-old and under boy was in the house, it was slaughtered. Sparing no child, taking from the parents. These children would be the first casualties of spiritual warfare. Children killed, parents devastated. It says in verse 18, the prophecy here. That there would be weeping for children that would be heard all across the city. 
as mothers can't fathom losing their sons. History says they killed upwards of 30 babies that day. It's a great massacre of children. I told you the dark side of Christmas, right? You can imagine the mothers wailing, families devastated. It's a desperate attempt to kill Christ and to maintain his power. Shows that the people who oppose God will do anything, commit any atrocious act in order to keep Christ out of their lives. Amen. Is there a lesson here? <laughs> I think there's a painful lesson here. The application here is, number one, this is on Herod. It's pure evil is what this is. And it's really nothing to Herod. He was a murderer from the get-go. I told you he killed his favorite wife. Out of ten wives, he killed the favorite one because he thought she was after his throne. He killed two out of, out of his sons because he thought they were after his throne. He killed a high priest. I mean, just anybody who got in his way, he'd kill them. When he, when he was on his deathbed, he had about five days to live. He sent his soldiers out to kill one member of every family in his jurisdiction. And they said, why? And he said, they won't cry for me, but they will cry. That's how evil and wicked this man was. So killing 30 little kids was nothing to him. But we value every life. He valued no life. He would go to all costs to stop Christ. It's all responsibility falls on him. He's a wicked man. Blood is on his hands. He is fully and completely responsible for his own evil actions. And I want you to see this. This is not only on Herod. This is the world we live in. This is nothing compared to the stuff we see in our world today. I don't want to get into issues, but we see more babies killed today. And this is, this is nothing compared to what, what abortion does. Right. And we don't even blink at it. We don't even talk about it. It's not even an issue we talk about very often. But America is governing this, allowing this. Money is going to this. And our nation is killing children left and right, and we say nothing about it. Amen. This is how atrocious the world we live in. It's a, it's a wicked world that Jesus came into. It's sinful. It's cruel. And as long as we live, I mean, this, this is, we, we can sit and weep over this and think this is awful, but it happens all the time. It happens throughout time. And as long as we live in this world, these are the types of things that we will see. It's the type of world we live in. There will be war and there will be casualties. It's a sinful world. There will be pain in this world. There will be death in this world. There will be sickness in this world. As long as we are alive, there will be a St. Jude with thousands of sick kids. It's the world we live in. There will be death. There will be pure evil. It's all a part of living in this sinful world. Some of you know what it's like. Some of you know heartbreak. Some of you know pain. Some of you know loss. Some of you know sickness. Some of you know death. You know those things. And deep down in your heart, even at Christmas, you know the pain of not having that loved one with you. You know what that's like. And this world cannot fix itself. That's why Jesus came. This world cannot clean up its own act. Trying to, for the world and politics, I like this, for politicians to think they can clean up this world, it's like trying to sweep up a room with a dirty mop. It just makes it more dirty. It's getting worse and more wicked. We see tragedy after tragedy and tear after tear. So you say, what... 
This is bad. This is the dark side of Christmas. What do you say to this, Josh? What would you say to these parents that had their, had their children slaughtered? What would you say to those who are in pain? And my, my answer is that I would point them to the only hope they have in this world, the only hope they have in the midst of tragedy. The world needed a Savior, and I would point them to Jesus. Your maybe, babies may have been lost, and they may die, and it may be tragic, and you may shed tears, but let me point you to the one who, who is the only hope that you have in the midst of a tragedy. The only peace that you have in the midst of chaos. The only salvation that you have in the midst of your sin. I point you all to the Lord Jesus Christ. Run to Him and find comfort. Run to the one who lived. who was not His life was not taken, but He lived a perfect life. And He went to the cross and He died for our sins. And He rose again on the third day uh, declaring victory over death, hell, and the grave. Over all tragedy. And, and, and it was a triumphant over it all. Point you to the one who is the Savior, who is God, who's coming back again one day to make all that right. He's coming back again as He promised. Amen. What a glorious uh, place we can turn to, to the Lord Jesus Christ, who arose again with power over the grave. Yes, I would tell those parents to cry. Cry those tears. But we don't weep as those who have no hope. We weep as those who have hope. We cry Easter tears. That those babies may have died, but we have hope in the resurrection that you'll see them again someday. Amen. He is our only hope. So you point then, but I point all of you in the midst of your pain to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one that gives hope in the midst of pain. John 11, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me, shall never die. What a glorious hope. I tell those parents there to trust right now that even in the worst of tragedies, God is working this out for them too. Let's move to the third point. We'll close. That's a, that's a tough one. The pain of Christmas. Verses 19 through 23, we now see the poverty of Christmas. So we saw the plan of Christmas. How God putting it all together. We saw the pain of Christmas. How God sent us hope and joy and peace in the midst of our pain. And now we see the poverty of Christmas. You see here in verse 19, it's, it's finally time to move. Herod dies. <laughs> That's a, he dies an ugly and hellish death. I don't even want to go into the details of how he died. I, I read a commentary this week that the, the his, historians say, the way they describe it, I wouldn't even want to speak about it in front of you. And when, as I read that, I said, good. That, that's the first thing that came to my mind. It was deserving. It was just. And it's a lesson to all of us. You can't mess with God. You can't oppose God. It never, it never works. Let, the, let Herod be a lesson to every one of us who wants to throw our fists up at God and do things our own way. Let, let Herod be a lesson to every single one of us who thinks we can live life how we want to live it and not, not ever look to God in any way, who, who can turn our backs on God. Let that be a lesson. Let, let Herod be a lesson to America that has turned its back on God and thrown its fist up at God and has stiff-armed God and said, we don't want you in our schools. We don't want you in our nation. We don't want you in our homes. We don't want you with our children. We don't want you anywhere to be seen. And let that be a lesson. That if you oppose God, you will pay for it. He dies. An ugly, hellish death. And it says here, we're looking at verse 19, but when Herod was dead, 
he died. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise. That's the second time an angel said this to him. And take the young child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for they are dead which sought the young child's life. So he packs up and he leaves. I love that about Joseph too. I can apply this to you. Every time God told Joseph to do something, he did. Amen. Every single time. What a father. What a father. Maybe said of me as I have kids around this room, my kids, that I leave my home in a way that whatever God tells me to do, I do it. If you do differently, you are not a godly father. I thank God for the fathers in here today that obey God. So they tell them to move. And he arose and took the young child and his mother and he came to the land of Israel. There's, there's another move. But when he heard that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father, Herod, that's his son, one of the sons that lived, he took his father's place. It's amazing to me that Archelaus, as soon as he, he's just like his dad. I, I, I can apply. This is Herod had a son that was just like him. As soon as he took the throne, he started killing people. When they saw that Archelaus did reign in Judea in the room of his father Herod, Joseph was afraid to go thither. Notwithstanding, he was being warned of God in a dream. So God told him, so he turned aside into the parts of Galilee. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the prophet, he shall be called a Nazarene. And we close there in verse 23. It's where the story ends. He ends in a small village called Nazareth, an obscure, unimportant town, a village of about 500 people. And this is where Jesus, uh, the infancy narrative closes here, and we stop. And, and you see in verse 1 of chapter 3, watch this, verse 23, he's, Jesus is in Nazareth, a small little town. And in verse 1, in those days came John the Baptist, first, John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In between verse 23 and verse 1, it's somewhere around 30 years. 30 years in between those verses. This is where Jesus grows up. This is where Jesus goes from being a, a little child or a boy to being a man. This is where we get the term that Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. This is his hometown. And the, the, the only thing any of us know about Nazareth, we would never have heard of the town Nazareth if Jesus hadn't been, this hadn't been his hometown. So this is where he grows up. This is where Joseph works. This is just, and this is another prophecy. It says there in verse 23 that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophets. That he would be called a Nazarene. And this is a very general prophecy. There's really no, no specific place in the Old Testament where you find this. But what this is saying is, and I want you to teach here for a second. This is prophesying that Jesus would be lowly. That Jesus would be poor. This is prophesying, there's tons of prophecies in the Old Testament saying that Jesus would be despised, he would be rejected, he would be looked down upon. That he would come from nothing and be a nobody. So this is where we get to Nazareth from because it didn't get any lower than Nazareth. This is this, The town of Nazareth was as, as low as it could get. You, you heard people say when they talk about Jesus, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. There's nothing good there. There's, there's nothing that comes from there. It's like being from the, the mouth of the hall. I mean, I don't know if you guys have ever heard that term before, but you, you're back in the backwoods of nobody. You're, you're from nowhere. I mean, you, you come to school and they say, oh, you're from up in the hall. I mean, that may be not the right way of saying things, but... Uh, <laughs> you know, you come out of there and they'd say, well, where have you been? You know, you're, you're, they have to pop sunshine back there to where you are. You know, that's, that's what... 
That's what Nazareth was. It was a. It was nowhere. I mean, people talk bad. It was. It, you bullied people by calling them from Nazareth. I mean, you'd have kids. You, back then, you'd say, "I'm from Nazareth." They'd laugh at you and mock you. Nazareth was as low a place as you can find. I mean, there's no no place as low as Nazareth. It's like God sent His Son to live in the, the lowest of towns in the history of the world. Nazareth was nothing. Nazareth was unimportant. Nazareth was back in nowhere. Nobody wanted to be from Nazareth. If you were from Nazareth, you made up another place to be from. And that's where He put Jesus. I mean, this is a, an amazing thing. It, how low He went. It was embarrassing. It was derogatory. And this is Jesus' hometown. I mean... If I want to send my son, I'm sending him to the greatest city in the world. God sent his son and sent him to the lowest, lowliest city in the world. Not a noble life, but an outcast life. Jesus was a nobody from nowhere with nothing. That's what this verse and prophecy is talking about. He was a nobody from nowhere with nothing. And I want you to turn with me to Philippians 2 and we'll close. It shows how low he went. Jesus steps down. This is his condescension. This is his humiliation of his poverty. I read this last week in Sunday school and I wanted to read it again. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was in also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, verse 5 and then verse 6, who being in the form of God, which means he was fully and truly divine. He was God. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Thought it not robbery to, he was not holding on to being in heaven. That's what that says. Thought it not robbery means that he was in heaven and it wasn't like God the Father was pushing him down. And making him come. But he was coming voluntarily. That in eternity past, God the Father looked at him and said, I'm going to send you into this world. And Jesus said, I'll go. And he said, I'm going to send you to the lowliest of places in the history of the world. And Jesus said, I'll go. I'm going to send you into the dirt. I'm going to send you. You're going to be a nobody. You're going to have nothing. You're going to be from nowhere. And Jesus said, I'll go. I volunteer. Send me. I will do this. I'm not holding on to heaven and the riches and the glory of heaven and the worship of heaven. Send me down there. I want to go. He's not holding on to it. He's not clinging to heaven saying, "Ah, don't send me. He says, I want to go. I want to, be, I want to do that. I want to be born in Nazareth. I want to be born to a little girl Mary. I want Joseph to be my adopted father. I want to live amongst the people. I want to be there. Send me. This is an amazing truth. Thought I'm not robbery to equal with God. But he emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. He made himself nothing. He came empty-handed. And took upon himself the form of a servant. It was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
Do you see how low he's going? He started in heaven and he became a man. And as a man, he didn't become a, he wasn't a king here. He became a servant here. And not just a servant, but he died upon a cross. And he just keeps on lowering himself lower and lower. I mean, think about it. Heaven to being a man, to, to not being in a kingdom, but being in Nazareth, to not being served, but to be a servant, and not to die in a, in a magnificent way, but to die on a cross, the lowliest of ways. I mean, he just keeps on going down lower and lower and lower. And he's saying, send me. I want to go. Nobody takes my life. I freely give it. What condescension. What humiliation. And Jesus did this. Coming into a hostile, God-rejecting world. A world that was after him from day one. Amen. Send me. I'll go. Why? Also, he could get to a cross. Also, he could die in our place. Also, he could make a way of salvation for us. Also, he could accomplish salvation for us. Also, he could offer salvation to us. He came to save us. From the heights of heaven to the lowest low of the world. He came for us. What an outstanding truth that we need to understand and comprehend. And he didn't die just any death. He was perfect, so he had to die at the hands of men. And they hung him on a cross. And the picture of the cross with his arms spread out wide is a picture of Jesus welcoming the world. Anyone who would believe in me can be saved. When you see him on a cross, you think of his arms wide open to you and to me. That's how he died. That's why he came. He was closed to us. And Jesus came to open to us. Make a way of salvation for anyone here who would believe. All of us. And the scandal of it all is that he came for the likes of men like Herod. You understand that? For me to look at Herod, and this humbled me this week, for me to look at Herod and to see the way he died and to think, good. He deserved it. And to not look at my own life and the things that I've done and say, I deserve it too. His arms were open to the likes of Herod. His arms are open to the worst person you can think of. And you know who the worst person I can think of is? Oh, you say Hitler. Oh, you say Saddam Hussein. Oh, you say whoever. The worst person I can think of is me. Because I know me better than I know any of you. And he came and he opened his arms to the likes of me. Kids here today, he opened his arms to the likes of you. You understand, you need to understand this. 
and to reject him and to oppose him and to turn him down is as foolish as you can be. Across this room today, you need to know his arms are open to you. And I love this. His arms are open to you not just to save you. They are. His arms are open to you in the midst of your pain. His arms are open to you in the midst of your poverty. His arms are open to you in the midst of things in life that you didn't expect, that you didn't plan. And it may be the darkest time of your life. It may be the darkest time, the darkest Christmas you ever went through. But you have a Savior who came down from heaven into this dark world that we live in and now stands with arms wide open to receive you if you will come by faith. That's what Christmas is all about. So you need to come. You need to run to Him. Kids, you need to run to Jesus like it's the most important thing in the world because it is. I don't care how old you are. You can run to Jesus as a 5-year-old. You can run to Jesus as a 10-year-old. You can run to Jesus as a 15-year-old. You can run to Jesus as an 85-year-old. If you're in your pew today and you are lost and you don't know Him as your Savior, then you will die a worse death than what Herod did because it won't be a death here. It'll be a death that you have in hell for all eternity. You don't want that death. You don't want to go that direction. You don't want to oppose God. If you oppose God, He will punish you. Don't oppose God. Receive God, accept His Son and His sacrifice. His arms are open to you today and you can be saved today. His arms are wide open to you today. Aren't you glad you're here today and you're saved? That His arms are open to you and you, you came and, and run to Him and he, he saved you. You say, what do I do? It's easy. You believe in Him. You put your faith in Him. You throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus and say, I am a sinner and I want to be saved. Herod has nothing on me. And he will save you and forgive you and give you a home in heaven. Amen. There's an old song that says, Only trust Him, only trust Him, only trust Him now. He will save you, He will save you, He will save you now. He will, if you only trust Him. It says only trust Him now. And then it says, and He will save you now. You will trust Him. There's a verse in that song that says there's mercy with the Lord. No matter how bad you are, He will save you now if you'll trust Him. So if you're here today and you're lost, I urge you, plead with you, please turn to Him. Don't refuse Him, but believe in Him. And He will save you. If you're here today in the midst of your pain, unexpected plans, and maybe even poverty, Run to Him. Turn to Him. And He will help you. I point every one of you here today, what we're going to do throughout the book of Matthew, is point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope this world has, the only light in this dark world, 
the only peace in the midst of chaos, the only Savior for our sins. I point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time in your word today. I know it was a dark passage. Probably something we haven't seen or heard. I thank you for showing us these truths. We, we, we teach them and preach them. Right? No matter what it says, we want to know these things. We want to know about you. God, I pray that I've done my best here today to, to point people to your Son who came into this world, fulfilled every single prophecy that was made about him, that came to the lowest of the lows. And at the lowest point, when he was in the tomb, it says you highly exalted him. You lifted him up. You've given him a name now that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. To the glory of you, our Father. We thank you for that. We pray, God, that today around this room, I know there's people here that are believers. They may be in pain. They may be having a hard time. It may have been a dark Christmas. I pray they would run to you. They would find their hope and their comfort and their peace and their joy in you. If there's some here today that are lost, I pray that they would turn to you. Only trust you. Only trust you. Put their faith in you today. And I know, God, that you would save them now. You are a saving God. So I pray that you'd work during this invitation time, that you would move in hearts, that your spirit would work. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.